Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. In this latest volume in the Library of Religious Biography by Ehrman's Publishing, Amy Collier Artman tells the remarkable life story of Catherine Coleman, who in her day was considered the best-known female preacher in the world. In the process, Artman relates the larger story of charismatic Christianity, particularly how it moved from the fringes of American society to the mainstream. Tracing Coleman's remarkable career as a media-savvy preacher and fleshing out her unconventional character, Artman also shows how Coleman skillfully navigated the structures, rules, and landmines that surrounded female religious leaders in the mid-20th century. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Daniel Stone, and today I'm really excited to have on Dr. Amy Artman on her brand new book called The Miracle Lady, uh, Catherine Coleman and the Transformation of Charismatic Christianity. It's right off the press, and I just have to say... I know I say this with all the books that are on the show, but this one is definitely one of my favorites. It's one of the best I've read this year. It's the way biography should be written, and I'm so happy to have Dr. Artman on, and she's and she's asked that I call her Amy. So, Amy, thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate it. I'm delighted, and my goodness, thank you for the nice words. I'm so glad that you enjoyed the book. That makes me very happy. Oh, very much so. So... Just to kind of get us started, um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Like, where did you go to school? What, what did you study? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I uh, did. I actually intended to go into the ministry. And so I did my master's. I did a master of divinity, which is always kind of a, impressive. I'm a master of divinity at um, Bright mm-hmm. Divinity School at Texas Christian University. And while I was there, I got um, the chance to study American religious history, and I began to realize that, you know, I think I'm, um, I think I'm interested in teaching this. And so I was lucky enough to get accepted into the um, PhD program at the University of Chicago, which is known for um, historically, huh, but known for its history of religion program. And I got the chance to study there with um, Catherine Breckis, who is a well-respected. Um, American religious historian, and I did my PhD work there, and then I got a chance to um, come back more towards home. I grew up, obviously, by my accent. I grew up around in northern Arkansas, and now I work at Missouri State University in Springfield, Missouri, and I get to teach undergrads all about um, American religious history. Wonderful. So I just got to say, the way you wrote the book and I just want everybody to understand, it's a very academic book, but it's so easy to read. I mean, anybody can pick this up and understand it. And that's the beauty of it. I mean, you weren't trying to put on airs. You weren't trying to you know, throw big words in there. I mean, it just, the way it's written, and I'm sure your editor, as all editors, they're all great, but just the way you wrote it and, and, and organized it, it just flows so well. It's almost like reading a novel, which you don't really expect when you're reading a you know, an academic biography in American religion. So kudos to you, Amy, for doing that. It was, it was a pleasure to read. Well, that's, thank you very much. I, um, I got the chance to work with Erdman's press and one of the, um, one of the editors there, I got to 
be at a conference with him and he kind of pulled me to the side and he said, this doesn't read like a dissertation. Um, kind of like, how'd you get away with this? And <laughs> I, <laughs> I have, my, again, my advisor and my committee were really wonderful and allowed me to, to create a, a manuscript or a project that had that kind of um, ease of accessibility to it. And then, yes, my, as you said, my editor was great. But, and I, was, I didn't set out to write a biography, actually. I set out to, to use Catherine Coleman and her life as a backbone um, to a larger narrative about charismatic Christianity. But then when Erdman said, hey, we got this um, religious biography series, would you like to be a part of that? I, well, yeah, that would be great. And so it's been very fun for me to watch how presenting this as a biography has made it more accessible to people because it doesn't appear so academic, just echoing a lot of the things you were saying. Yeah. And I mean, in Erdman's, their religious biography series is top notch. I mean, it's very well known. Um, I think this year they just came out with another book on Franklin Delano Roosevelt that's coming out. They're mm-hmm. coming out with a biography on Billy Graham and they had other biographies too with like, uh, uh, like William Miller. I mean, this uh, Emily Dickinson, right? The, her religious life. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a stellar cast. So for your book to be on there, congratulations. Oh, thank you. I was, yeah, I was very honored. Um, and it's just been fun. It's been fun to get the chance to talk about not just Coleman as Catherine Coleman as a figure, like I said, like a narrative backdrop, but to get to talk about her as a person because she is so interesting and she's been forgotten by um, by a lot of people. Now, within the charismatic Pentecostal circle, she's still very much remembered and revered, but to bring her back kind of the language I use is to kind of bring her back to the stage of American religious history has been, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. And, and you know, you touched on this, so I wanted to kind of delve more into it. How did you get interested in Catherine Coleman? It sounded like you kind of got interested in her during graduate school. It sounds like you wrote your dissertation on her. Mm-hmm, I did. Yes, actually, this actually is my, my dissertation uh, project. And then it's gone through, of course, several revisions and then um, has had a chance to now be published as a book. So that was a, a great joy to have all that work and time um, end up as a book. You know, I I wish there were some kind of really kind of sexy story about this. <laughs> um, it's actually, I I knew that I wanted to do work on, and, and I think we, we talked a little bit before we started the podcast and so we shared this interest. I knew I wanted to work on charismatic Christianity. Now I didn't know exactly what to call it. And it's kind of an ongoing conversation about how do you speak about this kind of religious experience? It's and and all the terms are, are kind of, um, they don't capture it completely. So, cause if you say emotional, is it really emotional religion? Is it, um, is it, it, it so I, I knew I wanted to do something about, religious emotion and religious traditions that tap into this idea of the Holy Spirit being um, a, an energizing force in worship and in prayer and in healing. And I love the 1970s. So I, I kind of came to it from, from that perspective. Um, and really and truly, I had been talking with my advisor, Catherine Breckis, and one day she said, have you ever heard of Catherine Coleman? And I no, I hadn't. I'd never heard of her. Um, and I, she said, you might you might think about her. Go and look at 
look at some things about her. So I did. And it, what was really amazing is that I found out that she had a large archival resource, the Catherine Kuhlman Foundation, which was her nonprofit foundation that she headed up. Um, when they eventually had to close, they gave all of their stuff, all of their archival stuff to the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College, which is just a short train ride away from Chicago where I was at the time. So it all kind of came together. It's like I, I needed a way to talk about this very kind of diffuse movement and this sort of difficult topic of emotional um, religion and how that works and how that's changed. And then I needed to be able to do important archival work and there it all was. So um, she kind of came to me as a gift. <laughs> oh, wonderful. You know, that's the best way. To, that's the best way for a project to start off is just it, it, with that curious stage and how it's almost like given to you. It's, it's yeah. sometimes it's, it almost seems like it, it was fate at, at times. I always like hearing authors say that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and to have experienced what I was getting ready to do that I didn't, I didn't know this, but what I was getting ready to write about, I had never heard of her. And I, I study, I was well into my work as a, um, as a PhD candidate in American religious history. I had done a master's that involved a great emphasis on American religious history and I had never heard of her. And so um, that was exciting as well to think, Oh, I bet there's a lot of people like me. Wow. Well, you know, let's, I want to pick your brain more on that. So that's interesting that you were deep into the subject matter and still never heard of her, but you, yet in your book, you're showing that it's during the, especially during like the mid 20th century, if you hadn't heard of Catherine Kuhlman, and it's almost like you were almost living under a rock. Mm -hmm. So I guess just to start off for our listeners, if they're not familiar with Kuhlman, why is Kuhlman an important figure in American history, especially within American religious history? Well, I think there's lots – I would say the first thing that comes to mind when I think about her importance in American religious history is you can't get around her gender. You can't get around her, her position as a female religious leader. Um, and I, I, there's, a, there's a quote in the book that I use. And part of my problem was there were so many good quotes from Catherine Coleman. It was like, what, how do I pick? But one of my favorites was she's on her talk show with a guest and she introduced the guest. I think the woman's name was Arlene Strackbein. And she says, um, well, Arlene, you said that you, you'd never heard of me. You'd never read my books. You'd never heard my radio show. You'd never seen my TV show you know, and you'd never heard of me. And just where in the heck have you been? Basically. <laughs> Um, and that's exactly like you're saying that if, if you'd been around in the sixties and seventies, um, even into the fifties, I argue, um, you, and you had any knowledge of what was going on in American religion at that time, you would have heard of her. Um, I usually will say to people who say, well, no, I've never heard of her. I'll say, well, have you heard of Oral Roberts? And they'll say, oh yeah, heard of Oral Roberts. I'll say, well, in her day, she was, um, equivalent, if not even more well-known for a while than Oral Roberts. And so her, why was she so well-known? I think her, her position is really the only powerful, um, I don't want to use significant because there were other significant religious um, women leaders, but really the most influential um, female religious leader in this charismatic uh, renewal movement that we talk about in the 1960s and 70s. 
And so I think that's um, significant for her um, her role in American religious history. Um, I think that what I argue in my book and what I think we see when we look at her life is that she takes through the medium of a talk show because she hosts a talk show, I believe in miracles for about 10 years. And she also has several best-selling books that were published that are still on the shelves. You can still order them um, today, but she wrote these books and she did these television shows where she would bring people onto television who were just regular people, just ordinary people, even oftentimes um, highly educated people, sometimes Catholic priests who would come onto her television show and the two of them would sit there and just calmly talk about things like divine healing and miraculous, um, being miraculously made whole from cancer, for instance, and things that um, were pretty controversial within charismatic Christianity, like being slain in the spirit where you would... um, appear to faint or to to fall out is one of the words that's used for that. But they would just talk back and forth just like it was the most normal, ordinary thing. And by presenting extraordinary religious experience in a very ordinary way, I'm arguing that she makes charismatic Christianity more palatable in its perception of those who are seeing her television show and those who are reading her books so when I looked at the history of charismatic Christianity or, or spirit-filled Christianity, if you want to use a term like that, from the beginning of the 20th century, where it begins with Pentecostalism, it was seen as being very controversial, very strange, very fringe. And by the end of the 20th century, you have huge evangelical churches um, that are manifesting worship styles that look just like charismatic Christianity. Well, how did that happen? How did you get from derision to acceptance and even celebration within um, American religion, American Christianity? And she's a major part of that. Um, And her work and her her talk show, her, her books, and just her leadership within the charismatic renewal movement. Was that kind of what you were wanting me to think about with you? Oh, sure. I mean, actually, I was just going to tell you, I think that is probably the most important part of your book is that with uh, with Catherine Coleman, you're seeing through her life, the transformation of charismatic Christianity in America. And I, I think, think that, right. of course, I do. I mean, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, it's a it's a it's a beautiful argument. And it's very convincing. I, I'm, I am thoroughly convinced that Catherine Kuhlman was the forerunner to, you know, turn this, you know, what often people thought of like holy rollers or Pentecostals, this idea of at least this out, you know, in the early 20th century, this outlandish, you know, uh, speaking in tongues, and a lot of people thought it was kooky, but Catherine and, you know, healings, where Catherine Kuhlman, she's, she almost gentrifies it. In a I sense, where, yeah. So I, I honestly, and I just wanted to ask you. So that's that seems to be the main argument of your book. But I, what I liked about the book is in the beginning, you talk about Coleman's early life and some of these uh, influences in her life that even Coleman doesn't necessarily say were influences, but you bring out and convincingly show that they these these people were influences like Amy Semple McPherson or Charles Price. Could you go into a little bit just for the listeners to understand is like where does 
where does Catherine Kuhlman, how does she become an evangelist? And how does she start getting towards this charismatic Christianity, this healing movement? Sure. Yeah, I, this is, um, the early part of her life is, is interesting because she doesn't, she talks a lot about her childhood. She um, grows up in Concordia, Missouri, um, and her papa, as she called him, was a Baptist, and her mama was a Methodist, and she mainly went uh, to church with her mama. Um, and Catherine has an older sister. She actually has several siblings, but her older sister, who's quite a bit older than her, I want to say Myrtle's maybe, Myrtle is her name. She's maybe, I want to say, 16 years older than Catherine. Um, Myrtle and Catherine, despite their age difference, seem to have had about the closest relationship. And so I'd say the first uh, influence in her younger life would have been Myrtle, because Myrtle falls in love with a traveling evangelist whose name is Everett. And it's interesting because Everett Parrott is his last name. He comes into town and sets up a um, kind of a traveling evangelist tent and um, Myrtle goes just to kind of see what's happening. And there's this very, there's this sense in the way that Myrtle and Catherine tell these stories that they're kind of the, the upper class of Concordia and they're going to find out what kind of the, would it be hoi polloi? Is that the, the right term that, that just the common people are doing? But she goes and she's, um, Myrtle is, is, she falls in love with Everett and then she marries him and then they begin to kind of travel the circuit basically in the West. And at about age 15, um, Coleman has kind of gotten to the point in her schooling that she can she can go on if she wants to. She, she doesn't have to complete high school. And Myrtle and Everett say, well, why don't you go with us? And so she does. And she goes off on an adventure at 15 years old. So let's see. She's born in 1907. I can't do math. <laughs> So she's she's young when she first um, when she when she starts out. Um, so the and this is in the 1920s. So just imagine this young Midwestern girl picks up and goes with her older brother and sister, and they had been they had been educated under, as you were saying, Charles Price, who was a this all these connections, but who was a a devotee of Amy Simple McPherson and. In Catherine Coleman's early life, as much as she wanted to deny it, all roads lead to Amy Simple McPherson to a certain extent. She's also educated at a school that was founded and influenced by A.B. Simpson, who was a, um, a higher life um, educator, a higher life proponent. And that's you have that idea of within a higher life that through through the gift of the Holy Spirit, you have the power to overcome sin. So she has that strongly in her background. Um, she travels around with Everett and Myrtle. Everett is educated at Moody in Chicago at the time, where, where they also have a lot of this emphasis on um, Christian perfectionism and this idea that you can overcome you can overcome your natural tendencies towards sin through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's going to translate more in Coleman's life into this idea that um, there's no such thing as a defeated Christian, she often talked about. And he may be kind of um, getting off track here. Let's go back to then Amy Simple McPherson. 
who is this celebrity bigger than life figure in the 1930s. It's as much as Catherine Coleman has been forgotten. I think Amy Simple McPherson also in many ways has been in some ways overlooked in American religious history as well, because when you go back and look at her role in Cal in her, in her ministry in California, she's just huge. She is, she is the, Oh, I don't want to say the Kim Kardashian of her day. Cause that's not exactly what I want to say. She's, I don't know. How would you uh, celebrity of someone? If you think about celebrity, um, Amy Silver McPherson was that, and she she has her four square gospel that she begins that begins to um, spread throughout the United States. She builds the Angelus Temple. She has KFSG K four square gospel, which is the first religious radio station, um, and. We know that Kuhlman traveled in the same areas that McPherson, or they called her Sister Amy, that Sister Amy traveled. So Kuhlman's in Denver, and we know that um, McPherson was in Denver. Kuhlman has a ministry in, um, up in Canada. That's where Amy Sibley McPherson is from. Um, Wayne Warner, another biographer of Kuhlman, talks about um, Kuhlman probably attending one of the um, Foursquare Gospel Evangelical Schools that Amy Semple McPherson um, started. But Coleman, throughout her life, wants to argue and talks about her early years as kind of the school of hard knocks um, and that her only educator is the Holy Spirit. Hmm. And she needs this because she need, she's wanting to create this, this narrative of the unschooled, innocent, um, young woman who's just, as she says, she's just stupid enough to say yes, basically. But when you look a little deeper into her background, you see all of these influences. Um, even though she says, I never met Amy Sumple McPherson, that's kind of, she's um, waffling there, I think, because I don't, I don't think she did ever meet McPherson. But I think it's hard to um, believe that she never saw her or wasn't influenced by her. And just when you listen to her, when you put the two of them side by side and you listen to them and you see the way she dresses, Coleman dresses in her early years, the influence of Amy Silverman McPherson is really undeniable. Um, but Coleman was very determined to, um, to distance herself from being, you know, kind of Sister Amy number two, basically. <laughs> Yeah. I, what I really liked about the book, you know, it's not it's not hagiographic. You know, you're not trying to glorify uh, Catherine Coleman. You're sympathetic to her. And I almost feel like you're trying to revive her memory and put her back into the importance of American religious history and how she greatly influenced it. But at the same point, you're you're sensitive. And I appreciated that. And you're in. But you're also pointing out, you know, I wouldn't say contradictions, but you did point out where it almost like, uh, you know, over time, Catherine Coleman had tried to create this narrative for herself, like you said, but you're pointing out that not that her narrative was false, but you were trying to point out, no, she did have influences. She was a product of her time. She, you know, regardless of whether she, she feels the Holy Spirit instructed her, there were uh, human influences that, that were involved. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I think if, 
I don't know. I think if we had her on here with us, which would be a scream, and I wish we could because she was great. <laughs> she was great on TV. She was fantastic on radio. Um, she was doing radio from just the very beginning. But if I think if 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 we could have her here and say, I think she might argue the Holy Spirit was working through those people, um, and so and I certainly want to I certainly respect that. But I think what. When I first looked up Catherine Coleman and I started, there's so much video available of her. And then when you go to the archives at the Billy Graham Center, there are um, hundreds of hours of her television shows and her radio shows. And I think what, what really clinched it for me about wanting to tell her story and, as you say, wanting to, to revive her and, and get people to like, look at this person was how real she was and she had just a really good sense of humor and uh, she never claimed to be perfect and it's interesting that I, I've, I've gotten a little pushback on that and I knew that when you write a biography of a person who is still considered God's anointed who is still considered to be a significant holy figure to a, a a population within um, Christianity, there are people who, who who would agree with Coleman. We don't we don't want to talk about those things. We don't we don't need to emphasize the human side of her. We need to emphasize what God does through her. But for me, what God does through her, if you like that language, or if you're not com- you know, comfortable with that language, what what she claimed that God did through her is made even more impressive by the fact that she was. This kind of oddball character. Oh, I may get in trouble for that. Um, kind of. I just love her, and I love her because she's fun and she's odd. And it, there's a great story um, where, if, if if any if any of your listeners get a chance, really, there's nothing there's nothing that compares to just going online and pulling up a video of Coleman, although. I might make some cautions about that, but that we could maybe talk about that later. But because just seeing her in action is the best. And she's very flamboyant. She's very dramatic. And there's a story that um, her sister Myrtle was at one of Catherine Coleman's healing services. And Myrtle is sitting behind uh, up in the stands and she's sitting behind these women. And Catherine's down on the, on the stadium floor and she's doing her thing with her big gestures and her very dramatic preaching. And Myrtle hears these women in front of her that kind of lean over to each other. And the women say, that's just, she's just too much. She's just, that's just all show. And she's so dramatic. And, and this is just all a big put on. And Myrtle leans forward and says to him, she's been that way her entire life. <laughs> apparently from when she was a little girl, she had always been this dramatic kind of flamboyant figure. And I'm glad that you picked up on that balance because I wanted that. I wanted to be honest about her, but also to respect her because that's how I feel about her. Oh yeah. It's very balanced. Good. And I liked how um, in the beginning, it almost, I, I felt like I kind of was, which is good because it's a biography, right? But I kind of started to get this sense that I started to know Catherine and the idea that you kind of show from the very beginning when she's 
going on these, uh, you know, these preaching missions with her sister and her brother-in-law that it's almost when she's preaching, you know, she's kind of doing some preaching along the side of her brother-in-law. Her preaching is her skills are innate. It almost seems like you're kind of arguing that she just had this gift and you had pointed out, I thought I found them humorous instances where she's kind of like, you know, up showing her brother-in-law oh, uh, and you know, people are excited to see her. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I didn't mean. Oh no, that's it. I just, I just thought that was really interesting. And that's a little. I mean, that may be a little bit of me. Um, Of course it is. (laughs) I mean, the biographers, the biographer definitely, or the scholar definitely, my voice is in there. But, but there's, there's this, this scene where she's with Everett and Myrtle, and, um, and she just gets just. And, and they've had their their kind of revival and no one or not many people have come forward at the end at the altar call. And she just, Coleman just gets beside herself and just gets so upset and um, feels like um, that, that she wishes they could have done better. And I just, I have, I have to think from her, the, her later actions where that there was a sense that if you if, if if I could have a chance, if I could have a shot at this, because the story is that Everett begins to let Catherine Coleman tell her story of her conversion, then I know and she's fascinating. She's mesmerizing. <clears throat> and so I know that when she would tell these stories that she would have had that same effect. And she's good looking, she's tall, she's um she has a, an interesting charisma about her. And so I'm sure there would have been a sense, and I say this in the book, that she's like, well, if it had been me, maybe more people would have come forward. And when Everett and Myrtle, they eventually, they get into a fight and Everett says, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. You can come with me or not to Myrtle and Catherine. That's when Catherine and her, her pianist, Helen Gulliford, basically decide that they're going to go out on their own. And I mean, it's, it's, to use a good old phrase, it's Katie bar the door from that moment on. That's this is been, and Coleman just and Helen established the Denver Revival Tabernacle, and um, she experiences great success separately from from Everett and Myrtle. So she, I talk a little bit about how there's a trope in Pentecostal call for women that the women um, their stories are, oh no, no, Lord, I. You know, you can't be calling me. You can't. I'm not the one. Um, and you have that in Catherine Coleman. She talks about. She says this so many times um, that I'm sure God had picked a man to do this job, but I. But the man would. The man said no, and I was just too stupid to say no. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's the most fascinating rhetorical. I don't want to use the word manipulation because that implies that she was kind of doing it consciously, but this amazing rhetorical move that allows her to be the one who's being called by God, but it's, it's, she's resisting it. So she does pick that up, but there's also this, uh, this sense that she's like, let me at it. Just, just get out of my way. And let me put me in charge and and look what happens. So that tension in her life, which she carries through her entire life because she's a religious female, a female religious leader in a conservative environment. She's got to figure out how do I lead 
but how to, but without coming under censure for being a woman who's usurping the role of a man. So she says, well, God asked a man. That man said no. And then God asked me. So I'm second choice, but there you go. And she also says, and if you, God chose me, and if you don't like it, then you talk to God, basically. <laughs> so that that whole aspect of things is is really interesting. But yes, her her move out from under Everett Parrott's kind of the word they will often use, covering, um, is a real interesting moment in her life. Yeah, it's a constant tension throughout your book where you're seeing Coleman trying to balance this. I mean. She's a prominent religious figure, right? She's an evangelist. Some even are arguing and believing that she's a prophetess. Yet, Mm -hmm. as you clearly point out, she's a woman in a man's world, right? She's preaching a religion that's very patriarchal in a lot of ways. So what is, you know, what does Kuhlman's influential ministry reveal about American Christianity in the 20th century, especially its evolution through during that process? I mean, because this is the time of Billy Graham too, right? I mean, Billy Mm -hmm. Graham is and he's a, a strong male, you know, evangelist. And here we have Catherine Coleman, which you're arguing and putting out that, I mean, she's very well known, just like Billy Graham and all these other male evangelists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so are you asking about her, her significance as a female religious leader or? Yeah, just, I, I, I kind of get the sense that, you know, Catherine Coleman is really, she's breaking the ceiling in, 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 in a way that, you know, I think, nowadays people might take for granted for what she actually kind of the trail that she blazed. That I think that there's a couple of things going on there and, and I can track out one or both or part of what's happening is then the question of where did she go? Why do we, where, why do we know about Billy Graham and Oral Roberts? And we don't know about her in general. Um, that's one way to track. I don't know that, it, but as far as her significance as a religious leader during that time period, I I think that that it's it's undeniable. But she's she's working all the time. It's, you know, it's the old everybody knows this quote, but it's the old Ginger Rogers quote that Ginger did everything that Fred Astaire did, but backwards and in high heels. So it's kind of that idea with a female religious leader that. At all times, she is she is leading and and establishing congregation. You know, she has a congregation in Pittsburgh. She has a congregation in Stambaugh, Ohio, which is close by. She gets her miracle, monthly miracle services going at the shrine in Los Angeles, the Shrine Auditorium in Los Angeles. But all the time that she's doing this, she's having to negotiate. And she establishes the Catherine Coleman Foundation, which is a um, at least million dollar nonprofit, uh, which is establishing congregations in many places throughout the world, including Vietnam. So she's doing all of this, but in within conservative Christianity, within conservative Christianity, where she has to present herself as a the terms you know she uses the kind of the term a lady basically. And the way she does that, as I, as I talked about, is that she, 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 it's, this isn't an innovation necessarily, but she really takes this and, and brings it to the fore. She does her healing through, um, using what, what we see in the New Testament that's called the, the gifts of the spirit. And there's an emphasis in her ministry on something called the word of knowledge. 
So her significance in American religious history is partially, I think, around, around this. When you look at Oral Roberts, for instance, Oral Roberts is doing the same kind of healing that she's doing, that same kind of miraculous healing. You have these huge gatherings. Um, but Oral Roberts does what's called point of contact healing. And he says that he has a power that's been given to him in his right hand that when he places his right hand on a person or even on a radio, let's say, that God can act through that, that he is a conduit and God acts through that conduit to heal the person. So that's a very, that I guess if you want to use the word agency, the agency there is located in Oral Roberts. And he can do that because he's a man. There's, there's no problem with that. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm, absolutely. Okay. And so, but then you have Coleman and what she then does or if you want to be careful with your language, what, what the Holy Spirit does through her, depending on how you want to tell the story, is that she comes into, into these gatherings as an evangelist. I think it's important to remember that Coleman, from day one till her death, understood herself to be an evangelist. That was what was most important to her. She says that the, the greatest healing of all is the healing of a soul. So all of this miracle stuff, that's toward the end of converting people. So the healing services and the miracle services and these miracles that manifest themselves in her ministry, she understands to be proofs of God's power that will draw people then to, um, to be converted to Christianity. <clears throat> so she comes into these, what she would think of as evangelistic services And as she preaches, the Holy Spirit begins to manifest itself is how she understands it. And she is not the one doing the healing. Now, Oral Roberts would say that as well. But here's where it gets a little different. She doesn't touch anyone. There's no healing lines. And this is where she is different from Amy Simple McPherson. There's no big line of people who come up like you would have in an Oral Roberts service. Excuse me where Oral Roberts would then place his hand on the person. She stands and she is given knowledge of the healing that the Holy Spirit is doing in the auditorium. So she stands, she preaches until she begins to feel that there are healings being manifest. Then she begins to say things like, um, someone in the upper corner of the auditorium is receiving a healing of emphysema. Stand up and receive your healing. Someone is receiving a healing of um, you know, put in your, your disease here. Someone in the wheelchair section, you can stand up, um, stand up, claim your healing. And so by abstracting the healing from her, from her body, from who she is and making it that all she's doing is receiving the knowledge of who is being healed. She's able then to maintain her position as a healer, an evangelist and a leader because it's God who's doing the healing, not her. And even physically, she's not manifesting healing. And that's the way healing then is understood going forward into groups such as John Wimber and the Vineyard Christian Fellowship understands healing this way. Um, and, and you have others who, who follow in that, in that trail. But I would say that that's one way that she is significant in how American religious history develops in the 20th century. 
Yeah, it's almost like she's on a tightrope because you had even mentioned that she didn't often or I guess never. She never called herself a pastor, right? I guess right. that 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 had different kind conno- that had a different connotation to it. She was very clear that she was never like an ordained pastor. Correct. Correct. And and I talk a little bit about kind of the dynamics that you have going on in in evangelical Christianity as it develops during the 20th century. Um, and as Pentecostalism becomes more gentrified, I said, I would say, and, and then you have the emergence of charismatic Christianity, um, that, and they begin to identify themselves as evangelical, that you have, um, as you're saying, this tightrope walk that she has to, um, walk in this environment. And I was so busy talking about, um, all of that. I forgot your question. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) no, it it was just a comment. Cause yeah, I love, again, cause I wanted to bring it. I really felt like, uh, Catherine Coleman was a trailblazer. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I really didn't know much about her. That's why I was so excited to read her book. And when I was reading your book, I felt foolish going, how come I didn't know her? I mean, she was she was a rock star. Like you said early on in the interview, she was a celebrity. But I guess, and I kind of saw the tension in your voice uh, when I first asked the question, because now she's largely forgotten. So here's this woman that's basically in a man's world doing this great revival charismatic christianity she's helping transform it within the american mind she's well known but yet it doesn't take many decades after she dies in the 70s where she's largely forgotten and your book is kind of reviving her it's a revival of her life bringing it back into the focus and i guess my question to you is you know she was a major influencer for american religion why is she forgotten it almost seems like a tragedy Oh, well, first of all, I love that idea that that maybe my work in some way will revive her. That's exciting for me. Um, she's just so she's just so interesting and so complex. And her complexity, I think, is part of why why she's been forgotten. And I've, I've been challenged on that idea of, of, of people being forgotten. So I, if I'm, if there's hesitance in my voice, I'm like, because there's always communities where, where these historical figures aren't forgotten. And so sometimes, so she's, Oh, I think you maybe even use the word overlooked or one of the reviews I've read about the book has talked about that she's overlooked. So why mm-hmm. is that? I think there's a few reasons I talk about, talk about these a little bit, one of the reasons, and the book goes all into this, and it's it's it is a tragic. This is the tragic aspect of it. She gets very sick at the end of her life, and she's only sixty nine when she passes away. And when she gets sick, she becomes weak, and I think begins to look for security. And she makes some really bad decisions at the end of her life, and she gets. Um, she gets kind of, oh gosh, I'm trying to think of a not awful word. Conned actually would be the word I would use by this by this guy named Tink Wilkerson and his wife, and they basically kind of take over her life and separate her during this time of illness from her friends at the foundation, and she eventually ends up changing her will, and she doesn't leave anything to the Catherine Coleman Foundation. And her original will 
left a few gifts to some friends, and then gave her entire rest of her estate, which wasn't a huge estate, but it was enough that it, that it would have made the Catherine Coleman Foundation able to to invest and probably continue. So really, when she passes away, she doesn't fund her foundation. She talks about how her she doesn't build buildings, so she's not she's not she's never she never wants to call herself a pastor, and that's a problem when you die because then you don't have a church that is going to carry on your names. Amy Simplin McPherson starts the Four Square Gospel Church. It's still around. Oral Roberts builds Oral Roberts University. She says that um, she builds lives and not buildings, basically. And so you definitely see her legacy in lives, but there isn't, there's not an institution or an organization or a building that then continues on after she dies. So that's, that's the very tragic side to it. Um, and really a very, a very sad ending in a lot of ways to her life. But then also there's the whole aspect of her uh, being a media figure, which I think is pretty fascinating. I talk about how, Media figures don't really usually have successors. I mean, Johnny Carson is the only media figure really we've ever heard of that it was who's going to be his successor. Maybe David Letterman. Um, But usually when a show ends, a show ends. And you don't think, oh, who's going to be the successor to, I don't know, think of a show that you like that has ended. Big Bang Theory. You know, who's going to be the successor to Sheldon? Um, You don't think of that. It's just like, well, the show ended. So as a media figure, when she dies, her show ends and that's it. So, so her, her lack of establishing a foundation or or, of not funding her foundation, not having an institution to carry on her name, and then also being this media figure, all of those things contribute then to her disappearance. I also go into, um, those who have claimed her legacy and I've gotten some pushback from this and I knew this would be controversial because I'm, I speak against um, the evangelist Benny Hinn and the way he has claimed Catherine Kuhlman as he is the one who's taken on her mantle. He basically says, and I talk about this in the book and you can can look at it if you'd like uh, at length, your listeners can, Um, but he really co-ops her. And says that that what God was doing through her, he is now doing through me, Benny Hinn says. And there again, when you abstract the power from yourself, which she did, it's not me doing the healing, it's the Holy Spirit. Well, when you die, then God just picks somebody else. So you don't have this idea that she somehow was unique. And I think in some ways that would be okay with her. Um, That... I think she genuinely felt that way. She didn't raise up successors. She didn't, um, you know, raise up women um, to follow after her. So there's a lot of reasons why she's disappeared and why it's time to remember her, I think. Yeah. Oh, this is fascinating stuff, Amy. Thank you so much. Well, I think now, it's super I, interesting. Oh, I'm glad you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, the, a lot of your book is on this too, so I don't want to go too much into detail. But and you've touched on it quite a bit for the interview. But you know, uh, Catherine Coleman, she really did use the media to mm-hmm. her advantage, and she saw the, the the huge potential for radio and then television. Could you just tell the listeners a little bit about that? And I mean, I guess for me. 
this kind of showed the shrewdness in a good way of uh, Catherine Coleman and the idea that, you know, it, it was just this innate understanding where she knew how to evangelize and, and she saw the avenues to do that. And she saw that modern media was the way to do that. I like the word shrewd. That's a really good mm-hmm. word for her. Yeah, she's just, I think I used the word in the book, savvy. Um, so shrewd and savvy. Again, I think this harkens back to her, like you, like you talked about her, her, her evangelist heart. And she's a part of this strand of evangelicalism in American religious history, where if it can get the word out, then we're going to use it. And when you look at evangelicalism, even back into like, like we talked about that you do some, you do your work on from the, in the late, um, 19th century, they used print they used um, uh, newspapers, whatever the media was, you know, gospel cars. They put stuff on the side of their cars. And so she's really a part of that strain of evangelicalism that is not afraid to use the next wave of media technology. So like I said, she's, she's doing radio when she's in Denver, um, which is early on in her life, in her late 20s and 30s. She's She's got a radio show called Smiling Through. When she comes to Pennsylvania, the first thing she does is she sets up a radio program. So she's being trained already in the timing of radio, and she's very good at it. Um, She just communicates well on radio, and she's just an interesting and effective speaker. So when TV comes along, um, she's right in there, and she was... Pretty, was fearless and it was very expensive, still is, but very expensive to do TV. And so she was able through the um, through the offerings at her at her very at her various healing services and also to her established congregations in in Pittsburgh and in Ohio to raise the money. She doesn't ever appeal for money on the show, um, and that's very different from those who come after her, like. Um, Pat Robertson and Jim Baker and that type of thing. So she, it's funded through the work of the Catherine Coleman Foundation. And I argue, and this is contested, so that's always fun, that <laughs> she's the first one to do a talk show, to do a religious talk show. And I set her in the conversation with people like Dinah Shore and the advent of Barbara Walters and just doing the research on talk shows because for me, uh, talk shows, of course, everybody, talk shows have always been around. I, I was uh, a teenager when Clinton went on the Tonight Show and played the saxophone, and that basically won him the election. You know, so for me, it's always like, oh yeah, television talk shows. But this was huge. This was a new thing, and she stepped right into that new technology and used it in um, really effective ways. And again, I think that just comes from being an evangelist, whatever it takes, whatever it takes. And we're going to, we're going to find the next new, she, she absolutely would have a Facebook page. She would be on Twitter, uh, (laughs) whatever is the next thing she would, she would definitely be on. And she is actually, which I think is kind of suiting. There's, there's all kinds of um, Facebook presence for Catherine Coleman. So yeah, I think that um, that's one of the really fun parts of the book is to just look at how she just, marches right in and takes on the next media aspect um, that comes along. <laughs> awesome. Just so everybody understands, again, I'm talking with uh, 
Dr. Amy Artman on her wonderful new book, The Miracle Lady, Catherine Coleman and the Transformation of Charismatic Christianity. And again, I know I've been tooting your horn a lot, Amy, but I mean, it's it's a it's a it's it's very well reviewed. Uh, Catherine Breckis from Harvard Divinity School, uh, Heather Curtis from Tufts University, the famous John Wigger from University of Missouri. I mean, Publishers Weekly, Weekly, it's a starred review. It's an excellent book. And like all the names, they're all wonderful, well-known people within the field that are, you know, giving you kudos. And it's even nice to hear that you're getting a little bit of pushback from yeah. either academics and also from uh, from people in the religious community, because it means that you are offering new arguments and it's getting people talking. So, I mean, if, if history is meant to do one thing, that's what it's meant to do. So it sounds like your book is off to a really successful start. It's been so great. Um just to get to do this, when you got in touch with me and asked me, could you be on a podcast? Like, well, yeah. And I'm getting, <laughs> I'm getting the chance to go to um, some conferences and talk about it. And I think it was for years, I sat in this little room at we, at the Billy Graham Center archives and watched videos of Catherine Coleman. And that can be a little isolating feeling and nobody knows about her and nobody remembers her and this, and but now to be having conversations like this um, with with kind people like you who who find this interesting, it's just a real delight, and I'm I'm looking forward to just just more and more of it. Awesome. Well, Amy, I don't want to. I know I've taken up a lot of your time, but I'm curious. What are you working on now, and what can we expect to learn from you in the near future? Well, that's so nice. Um, I right now I'm. I'm kind of, I'm doing a lot of work with the book, which is really a lot of fun. Um, so that's taking up a lot of my time and getting the chance to, to talk about the work that I've been doing. Um, I'm also getting a chance to uh, teach a course on religion and healing now, which um, at Missouri State University where I teach. And it's, there's such an interest, especially within the medical community or the health and human services community right now about what's being called medical humanities. And so to get the chance to teach a class on, uh, basically it's biomed, the kind of the history in the 20th century and 21st century of biomedical faith and folk healing and how all of those have come together and to have nursing students as well as religious studies students and that type of thing. That's, that's a really fun thing that I'm getting to do. And I guess where I feel myself, you know, who knows? Cause I didn't know I was going to study Coleman. Um, but I, where I'm feeling myself starting to have some pull and I'm starting to think about this, this person and, and hearing his name, there is a, um, there is a, a minister whose name is Carlton Pearson and he has, um, a ministry in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and he comes out of this same kind of background. He got his degree at Brigham Young University. Then he goes on into the, and he's in the African American community of charismatic Christianity. He's on the Catherine Coleman show. This is how I kind of got first exposed to him. He's, he's a young man on the Catherine Coleman show and he's brilliant and hysterically funny. Coleman just laughs the whole way through it. So, um, and he goes on then to, established one of the biggest, fastest growing churches in Tulsa. And this would have been in probably about the eighties and nineties. And he's directly in African-American Pentecostalism, charismatic Christianity. Then he moves to um, 
universalism and which is this idea that all people will be saved that that no one is punished eternally um and that's actually a movement that's happening in evangelicalism right now is this evangelical universalism that I'm also interested in so again we've got all these these disparate groups that I want to talk about and how do I do that? And here's this person whose life is kind of manifesting that. So he moves from charismatic Pentecostal Christianity to this evangelical universalism. Then he moves out of that into, and this is where he is now because he's still alive and well, um, something called new thought, which you're probably familiar with, with your work, which has been a part. And I talk about this a little bit in my book. It's been a part of American religious history for the entire history of America. And this is the idea that the mind can um, effect change. So like Norma Vincent Peale, the power of positive thinking in the fifties, that's kind of a new thought aspect. So maybe, maybe I'm going to go over and have a big conversation with Bishop Pearson and um, begin to maybe tell his story. I don't know if that will be a biography or if exactly that will work, but one thing that's neat about American religious history is that there's always something interesting. There's always something developing. There's always something that there are other people who want to talk about it. Um, so that may be where I'm headed next. Oh, wonderful. I Well, I hope you do that. That sounds fascinating. He's interesting. He's a very interesting figure. Great. Well, Amy, I just can't thank you enough for being on the show. This was a really fun conversation. Again, the book is called The Miracle Lady, Catherine Coleman and the Transformation of Charismatic Christianity. I really hope the listeners buy the book because it is definitely worth having on your bookshelf. It, and it's a great reference. And it's just a pleasure to read too. So it's not just a reference book, but it's just a nice book to read. And it's, again, Amy, thank you so much for being on. We really appreciate it. Well, I thank you. You're a wonderful interviewer. And I, yeah, I hope your listeners go meet her. Um, she's she's a lot of fun and they yeah, I, I think they'll like Catherine Coleman. Awesome. All right. Take care. Thank you. You too.